All right, uh, will you stand with me as we read God's Word? We are in Philippians 1, and it's, uh, we'll be going through verses 12 through 30. <clears throat> I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? God, I'm so glad that I'm not the Holy Spirit um, because I cannot. Even if I could get up here and eloquently preach everything and hit all the points and I had read all the commentaries and I knew all the syntax and structure and was able to hit every piece of what I should say or what I feel like I should say, God, I could still not be with everybody in their current circumstances and divide your word appropriately to encourage them or challenge them. But Holy Spirit, you can. And so I just pray, Lord, if there's anything that I say that is not of use, that you would throw it away. Let it fall on deaf ears. But Lord, that you would let your truth sink deeply into our hearts this morning and encourage us 
so that we might be a people who are marked by suffering, by joy in the midst of suffering. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, you can sit down. (laughs) The fight was billed the rumble in the jungle when approached and asked about um, whether Muhammad Ali would fight George Foreman, he wanted $8 million to make the fight happen. Some sources estimate that the fight was watched by as many as 1 billion television viewers in the world, which at the time made it the most watched television broadcast. The fight was held in Kinshasa, I think Zaire, if I'm saying that right, which is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and it was attended by 60,000 people. George Foreman, who at the time was undefeated, had 40 wins, zero losses, and 37 knockouts. Minutes before the fight, as Ali was waiting to enter the arena filled with 60,000 people, he looked around at his team who he didn't feel had enough confidence in him, and he said this, Why are you all looking so scared? You act like you're going to a funeral. I'm the one fighting. George Foreman, George Foreman. You've been believing all the stuff you've been reading about how hard he hits. George Foreman knocked down Joe Frazier. He destroyed the kid. He goes on, when you get out here, if you're afraid, just smile. Just act like you're happy. I'm not going to win the fight if I go out thinking like you. And so the question is, as we read Philippians uh, 1, 12 through 30 today, and as Paul is rejoicing in the midst of his sufferings and encouraging the Philippian believers to do the same, is that what God wants for us? Is that what Paul wants for us, to just smile, just grin and grin and bear it? Does he want us to just pretend or... Don't let the fear get you down. Just smile if you're scared. Cover up the weakness. Because if you haven't suffered in this life yet, you will. So how, how do we follow what Paul is prescribing here and what the Holy Spirit has inspired him to say? The problematic reality is that when we face suffering and disaster, we respond in fear, not in joy, naturally. The gospel of Jesus Christ has advanced for millennia. In the face of suffering and disaster and the distress of Jesus' disciples, they found great joy, even in the midst of suffering circumstances. So we see that Paul, in our text here, follows Jesus in some hard circumstances, and he calls the Philippians to follow after him as he rejoices and he advances in his faith. So the question becomes, how do we do that? How do we follow him in that? How do we follow Jesus in this? I think there's three ways or three pieces to this, and it's we need to suffer with joy, or we can suffer with joy by reframing our circumstances, by relinquishing our lives, and by remembering the God of the cross. So we'll start with reframing our circumstances. Reframing our circumstances in the light of the gospel. So after... Uh, Jason did the introduction last week to Philippians 1. And after the introduction, Paul cuts to the chase. He knows that the Philippians are concerned that he's in prison. 
and he's writing them about the subject specifically. But he only kind of cuts to the chase. The Philippians are worried about the man who is their brother, the one who began their, like, founded their church. And they've got, like, a lot of relationship and relational miles with this guy. They're worried about him. They care about him, as Jason highlighted last week, and he loves them very deeply as well. They've even gone to the point of sending this guy named Epaphras, we'll find out later, to go and find out how he is. So can you imagine, kind of put yourself in their shoes today. What if our friend John is actually leaving this morning to go to Uganda or McGraw, who is in Nigeria right now as a missionary? What if one of our friends had been put in prison for proclaiming the gospel? How would we feel? How would we react? How would we respond? We would do everything that we could to either find a contact in that country to find out how they were doing. We would do everything that we could to like, write to them, to communicate with them, to find out how they were doing. We might even send somebody like they did. And what would we say when we did finally hear from them? We would say, how are you? How are you doing? Are you hurting? What can we pray for you about? Like, what's going on? What's the verdict look like? How long? Are, are things moving along down there? What, how was the fruit basket that we sent you? And, and what if they responded to us and all they wrote back was, the gospel is advancing? We would be puzzled. Like, what? Did you hear what we said to you? Did you hear what we asked? How are you doing? So the syntax in this, in this sentence, Paul starts out and he's going toward, like, you would think he's going to tell us how he's doing, right? Like, that's what the Philippians want to know. But then he takes this hard right turn. And he starts speaking about the gospel. Now, Paul is not, minim- he's not minimizing his circumstances. He's honest. We've seen in verse 15 about those who are preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry. He's been ripped from his fellow believers, and he's probably being carted to Rome right now, so he's somewhere along the way at least, um, where he's going to face judgment from the emperor and possible death. He's being prisoned, imprisoned on his own dime because there was no free prison back then. And lastly, in verse 20, he's even candid about the reality that he might die. He's not minimizing his circumstances or, or ignoring them or trying to like, get away from talking about them. But he's reframing. So let me clarify the situation at hand. Circumstances. Paul's imprisoned. The Philippian believers have been terrified to share the gospel for fear of provoking the local authorities and ending up in prison like Paul. There are ingenuine believers that are preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition, wrong motives. And later we'll find out that the guy that they actually sent to him makes things worse and gets sick and doesn't help Paul at all. This is a train wreck. It's an absolute disaster. Things look really bad. Like, really bad. The Philippians are distressed at their circumstances for good reason. But how does Paul address them in the middle of all this? He's not panicking, it doesn't seem, though he definitely could. He could be afraid of death, he could be afraid of people sharing the gospel from wrong motives. 
and write to the Philippians trying to discredit them. He could become discouraged and afraid because he's not fulfilling his purpose. He's not sharing the gospel in the open in the market square. But instead of giving to fear, what does he do? He looks at the consequences of his imprisonment. So look with me in verse 14. So verse 14, Paul shows us that the Philippian believers had actually come, become more courageous in sharing the gospel after he was in prison. The gospel of Christ in verse 18 is being proclaimed regardless of people's intentions. And then verse 13, again, the imperial guard and other persons surrounding Paul's imprisonment have come to know that he's actually in prison for Christ. Things look bad, look really bad. But when Paul steps back and, and we step back with him and look at the, and refocus on the broader reality, we see this picture that the gospel is advancing within the prison and outside of the prison and also in Philippi. The gospel is actually not advancing in spite of Paul's imprisonment, but because of it. And one commentator says this claim would have been a surprise to the Philippians who would have judged from appearances that the gospel was in jeopardy. Caleb, uh, my friend, once told me the story of the Chinese farmer uh, Alan Watts, that Alan Watts originally told. So the story goes, there was this, this farmer and his son, and they labored through the cold winter, winds of winter and the scorching rays of summer with their last remaining horse. One day as they were coming back from the fields, the son went and put the horse up in the stable, but he forgot to lock the gate behind the horse, and the horse ran off. His neighbors heard about that, and they came to him and they said, this is a disaster. What are you going to do now? Like, How are you going to harvest your fields? How are you going to plow? How are you going to get the work done at all? You don't have a horse anymore. They said, this is a tragedy. And he said, maybe. The next day, the missing horse returned with seven other horses, and they all galloped into the stable. The sun locked the fence behind them, the gate behind them. When his neighbors heard about that, they came to him, and they were puzzled, and they said, this is amazing. Now you have seven horses. You're not only going to be able to like, harvest your crops and, and do all that you need to, but you'll be able to, be able to do it seven times faster. And he said, it was like, this is amazing. And he said, Maybe. When the son was trying to break one of the wild horses, he got thrown off of its back and broke his leg. And the neighbors came to him as they heard about what had happened. And they said, this is horrible. I'm so sorry to hear that your son uh, has broken his leg. Now you won't have anybody to help you on the farm. I'm sorry for this tragedy, for your loss. And the farmer said, maybe. The next day, the conscription officers of the Imperial Chinese Army came to take from that town all the able-bodied young men to fight on the front lines of the war. His neighbors, realizing what had happened, came to him and said, wow, what incredible fortune that your son broke his leg so he wasn't able to go and fight on the war and surely die. And the farmer said, maybe. 
And this story teaches us to be skeptical of seeming situational fortune and misfortune. While we don't, take, we don't need to take lightly the things that are good and bad in our lives that occur to us, but we need to be aware that we have a limited perspective on reality. We're not viewing our reality based on the whole picture or the outcomes of the circumstances. We are only aware of what's happening to us in the present. And so, that, that being said, when disaster strikes and we begin to suffer in this life, it's easy to react out of fear. And that's what the Philippians are experiencing right now as we see them in this text. Because of the circumstances set before them, they get frantic. They become afraid. They start forming conclusions about how things are going based on their own perspective. But what if, like Paul, we came to our suffering with a little bit of skepticism? What if when we entered times of disaster, we sought another perspective? Paul is reframing in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's reframing his circumstances, his suffering, his chains, all that's going on in light of the gospel. As long as he can see that the gospel is advancing, and he does, Paul is joyful. But this isn't some... The gospel advancing isn't just some ethereal philosophy that's going out there and spreading. The gospel of Christ advancing means that he can see his Lord Jesus working in the midst of his persecution. It means that the advancement of the gospel, it, the advancement of the gospel means that he can see that his brothers in Philippi are still following Jesus amidst possible persecution, and that they are able to take hope in Christ when it looks like all is lost. <clears throat> so, for us, what are some circumstances of suffering or fear in our lives surrounding our immediate circumstances that can be reframed in the light of the good news? in the light of who Jesus is and in light of, like, valuing him first. Where might we need to become comfortable enough in the midst of our circumstances to look outside ourselves for hope? So maybe, maybe this is you're watching the war in Ukraine right now and wondering when people are going to stop dying. Maybe there's an election coming up. There are going to be a lot of people on either side who call themselves followers of Jesus. There's going to be a lot of name-calling, a lot of division, a lot of fear as maybe the, the weight of the future hangs in the balances of who gets elected. Maybe there's significant life circumstances that are affecting the trajectory of your future or your career. Maybe your mental health is impeding your ability to love your family or your children as well as you desire to. Maybe your financial state is in disarray you're struggling to, and you're struggling to believe that God will provide for you. Or maybe you continue to struggle in your experience of loneliness and pain and you don't know why God won't just alleviate it. What would it look like for us to enter these spaces, for us to enter these realities or help brothers and sisters in Christ reframe these experiences of suffering in light of the greater and supernatural reality that is surrounding them, in light of the advancement of the greater story, of God's story, which 
has a completely different, a completely larger perspective. Again, I think time is a really important thing here too. If we're going to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ and we're not, we're not just going to stuff our feelings or stuff theirs and just tell them to have the right answer to things, I think we need time. I mean, Paul's not sitting in prison and just being like, you know what, everything's fine. Uh, how, can I, how can I look for the, the positive in this? He's not accentuating the positive and eliminating the negative. He's, he's dealing with his circumstances and yet looking for hope in Christ. So once Paul has reframed his circumstances and seen them through a different lens, he's able to relinquish control of his life. So we come to our next point. We have to continue into suffering. We get to continue in suffering with joy by relinquishing our lives. So in verses 12 through 18, Paul tells about the advancement of the gospel in, fi- in spite of his hard circumstances. That's verses 12 through 18. We just covered that. Then he does some vulnerable introspection about whether to choose death or life in the midst of like where he is at, actually. <clears throat> and then in verses 27 through 30, he gives instruction. He turns to the Philippians. And he gives them instruction on how they ought to conduct themselves in the midst of their situation. In verse 28, Paul says that the Philippians should not be frightened by their opponents. Does he mean they should not feel fear? I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he knows that they're afraid. He feels fear from them. I mean, they've sent people to him. They're worried about him. They're worried about themselves. But it seems as if in verse 27 through 30, he's telling them that they should not... uh, they should not be dominated by that fear in the way that they live their lives. They know what's happened to Paul for proclaiming the gospel, and they know that the same will happen to them if they proclaim the truth in boldness. So how does Paul prescribe in, in verses 27 through 30? Let's, let's look really quickly. In verse 27, Paul is encouraging the believers to live as citizens of the gospel and stand firm in one spirit, to strive side by side in the faith, And then in verse 29, he calls them to continue to suffer for Christ as they believe in him, to fight the same conflict that he is fighting. Now you may say, Val, it doesn't really say a whole lot about letting go in here. And this isn't anywhere in the text. You're right. It's not anywhere specifically in the text. Paul's not telling them to let go, and Paul himself isn't saying he's letting go. Uh, But look with me in verses 19 through 20. He says, For I know that through your prayers and through the help of the, of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. Paul is confident in his deliverance, but he knows the deliverance will come from Christ. And since he knows that he will be delivered, or the word here is also like saved, he doesn't have to worry about the details of what that looks like. He's free. The gospel is advancing. Paul will be delivered. Christ will be honored whether he lives or dies. And so he can, he can let go of his life. Paul's not seeking to drive the ship anymore. It's actually in the midst of Paul's immense lack of control that we see that his circumstances are 
going a lot better than Paul could have planned. And that's, that's specifically because when we're hoping in God Himself and not some specific situation or some specific outcome, we can let go of trying to control our circumstances. And so deliverance to Paul looks like death or life. He could die and be executed by the Romans, or he could be exonerated. Again, this, isn't, this is because specifically his hope is not in life or death itself. It's, he is already hoping in the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. I didn't actually know Jonathan was going to be here, but this is uh, a story about him and I. So we were in a fight club before he went off and left me for California. Uh, and I was, we were doing prayer requests, and I remember sitting there, and um, I was asking for prayer because I was very weighed down with, I think I was a sophomore probably, so I didn't even know what weighed down was at that point. But anyway... Um, I was like very anxious about the semester and I was looking at my syllabi and I was looking at all the assignments and papers and exams that I had to do. And I remember just like saying, hey, I need, I need prayer that I can accomplish all the things that I'm like going to have to do this semester. I'm very like, I'm afraid that I won't be able to get it all done. And instead of saying, yeah, we'll pray for you for that. Instead, he said, so what? And I was kind of irritated, actually. Um, and so we entered into this conversation, and this is kind of what it went like. He was, I was like, uh, well, so if, if I don't get all my assignments done, then I can't, I'm going to, like, fail one of them. And, if I, and he was like, so what? And so I was like, okay, well, if I fail one of my assignments, then I'm not going to do well in at least one class. He's like, so what? And so I was like, okay, well, if I fail one of my assignments and I don't do well in one class, then my GPA is going to drop. So what? And if my GPA drops, then I'm not going to be able to have a scholarship anymore because that's the only thing that's allowing me to go to college because I can't afford college. If I can't afford college and my GPA drops, then I'm not going to be able to have the future that I want and everything's going to go to crap and everybody's going to see that I'm a failure. I'm going to fail out of college. I'm not going to have this future orientation. My entire life is going to change. Everything's going to be in shambles. It's all going to be on fire. And I remember just like getting really, like it made me more anxious. I was angry. I felt like he was being insensitive. But my friend was actually discipling me. And in that moment, in the midst of all my fear, he said, looked back at me lovingly and said, but you'll still have Christ. You'll still be saved. And I needed to realize in all of my anxiety and all of my fear and need for control, I needed to realize that my worst case scenario was not that I would lose Christ, but that I would lose control. I was, I was not afraid of not pursuing Him or not pleasing Him or not living my life according to how He would have me, I was very afraid of losing control of my circumstances.
We can see in Paul here as well, as he's, as he's in, in jail, in prison, whatever that looked like, and he may have just been under guard, there's a, very much a difference between being bound and being in bondage. So what does it look like for you? What does it look like for me? We've already seen what it looks like for me in this scenario, but what does it look like for us to relinquish our lives? Situationally, what could that look like for, for us? I think the thing maybe that you need to follow if you're, if you're wanting to like dive into this, the thing to follow, like, like for me, is what area in my heart or my life am I most sensitive to losing control over? If you follow that sensitivity and fear, if it's like, like pressing on a bruise, that's, that's probably the area that you need to surrender to God. The world of flesh and the devil don't want us to loosen our grip. So maybe that looks like letting go of our finances, even when they're in jeopardy and not seeking to control. Maybe it looks like for asking, uh, maybe it looks like letting go of your future like it did for me. Maybe it looks like you have a lot of fear or concern about how your children are going to turn out, whether uh, success-wise or whether they're going to continue in the faith. Maybe it looks like asking for help in the midst of addiction. Maybe that's what letting go looks like. Maybe it looks like letting go of people's acceptance and perception of you. Maybe it looks like even something good, letting go of something good, like letting go of being the one that God uses in a certain circumstance. Or letting go of having your schedule just as you need it to be. This is, this is hard. Like if we're, if we're going to actually dive into the particulars of suffering can make us rigid and afraid and controlling about specific instances in our lives and about specific areas in our lives. And so if we're going to do the hard, introspective work of seeking to surrender to Him and facing the fear of losing control, we're going to need, we're going to need help. We're going to need Him. Will you turn with me to Acts 4, 27-30, and we'll read it in just a moment. I'm going the wrong way. I was a theology major and I'm turning the wrong way. That's Acts 4, 27 through 30. And we'll read it in just a moment. Uh, we're going to need help specifically from the God of the cross. And so we've got to remember him. In Matthew 27, 54 we see this scene where the centurion is standing before the cross. And a lot of people I've heard say, you know, he's confessing faith in Christ. He's looking at the scene before him. This is Jesus' crucifixion. And he sees a tragedy. He realizes that they've, they've just killed the Son of God. There's like earthquakes and darkness and the temple curtains being torn in two. He's crying out and all these like creation is groaning around him. And he sees a tragedy and he realizes that they've done this horrible thing. That is how it seems at least. Jesus is dead. 
He's hanging on a cross with no air in his lungs. The Son of God's head was hanging limp. And if any of us were there, we would have called it a tragedy too. But now actually read with me in Acts 27 through 30. What do Peter and John say as they pray to God? For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand had your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Everything was not as it seemed, is what Peter and John are saying and praying. Nobody was seeing reality as it was. The centurion saw the cross and he said, we've just crucified the Son of God, which is true. He saw a tragedy. And all the disciples, and it it was in a way, but everything wasn't as it seemed. God was working powerfully through that instance and nobody was seeing it. And that's what Paul's fueled by in Philippians 1.21. In the midst of sitting in prison, unable to proclaim the gospel in the market square or help tamp down those who are sharing the gospel out of selfish ambition while he's waiting for his trial where he could end up being beheaded by the Roman authorities, he can claim that all outcomes look like deliverance. One of my favorite examples of like the joy and like ridiculous boldness of Christians uh, is from from the first century. Is actually uh, it's, I found it in a book called The Drama of Scripture. There's this um, Craig Bartholomew in his book. It's not up there yet. I'll give you the uh, Craig. Well, actually, you can throw it up there if you want. Yeah, sweet. <clears throat> Craig Bartholomew in his book, uh, The Drama of Scripture, he talks about crucifixion. He says that it was reserved only for slaves and foreigners, for the worst criminals. In the judgment of the Romans, uh, in, the, in the judgment of the Romans, the physical suffering was terrible and drawn out as long as possible for many hours, or even days. During the process, the victim was utterly degraded, hanging naked to the public view and suffering jeers and taunts of passerby. The Roman citizen particularly, but for the Roman citizen particularly, sorry, but also for the subject peoples within the Roman Empire, the cross was this potent symbol of humiliation and agony. And yet the early church had the temerity to point out this event, the crucifixion of their leader, as the mighty act of God. What utter foolishness. It's little wonder that the church was mocked by its opponents. There's this drawing behind me. Scratched on a wall from the early Roman Empire shows the body of a man with the head of an ass nailed to a cross. And a man worshiping it. See above. Scrawl below it is the mocking caption, Alexa Menos worships God. Apparently some slave or child was poking fun at someone with this early cartoon. How stupid. How absurd. To worship a crucified God? 
The claim that Jesus' death was a mighty act of God must have seemed like utter foolishness anywhere within the Roman world. And yet the early church makes the bold and fantastic claim that the cross is the central work of God in human history. Where does this boldness come from? The boldness, specifically, is a product of the radically different perspective because the church looks at the cross from the lens of the resurrection. That was all a quote, by the way. Um, It looks like defeat. It looks like scandal. It looks like the war is over and they've won. The Son of God is dead. I mean... Have you all ever thought about how weird it is that we worship a God who died on a tree? But that's the scandal. That's the, like, the intricate beauty of it. Is there are these believers who are being made fun of. It's like, your God is nailed to a cross. And this is why Paul is able to call the believers to continue to advance in their faith in the midst of suffering, like in the midst of suffering, in the midst of ridiculous circumstances and disaster. So how do we remember this? In the day-to-day, on Monday morning, Tuesday evening. What does it look like to feel pain and fear of disastrous circumstances and yet find unexplainable joy? Maybe it looks like, I don't know, functionally, what it is for you, but maybe it looks like stepping away from a fight with your wife or your husband to reorient and like regulate and remember the truth and the reality that is yours in Christ. Maybe it looks like like it did for Jason, like you talked about last week. Maybe it doesn't look like doing anything, but your community surrounding you in times of pain reminds you of the truth that is yours. Maybe it looks like taking a drive to clear your head. And remember that you're, you're a little too close to your suffering. That your perspective and what's going on right now isn't everything that is happening in the world. Maybe it looks like, even in a moment, the Lord's table to remind us of the truth. We're going to come to the Lord's table and eat the bread and take the cup and remember that Jesus has freed us to rejoice in our sufferings. So imagine a new scenario. We talked about the George Foreman fight at the beginning. But imagine a new fight. And there's this boxer who walks out. He's about to walk out in front of a crowd of thousands. But before he walks out, he prays to God, not anxiously for victory in the fight, he prays that he would be glorified whether he, is, he wins or he's knocked unconscious. How do you think he would be able to fight? Whether he's a good fighter or a terrible one, he's going to be able to fight with so much more freedom and joy where he is. And what would it look like if we were a people like that? What would it look like if we, in times where we entered... We weren't praying for specific situational deliverance, but we were praying that God may be glorified no matter what the circumstances.
What would people see us? How, how would people see us when we walked through deep suffering marked by joy? How would we experience our lives when we were hurting but also able to feel the love of our Lord? The way to find joy in Christ in the midst of suffering, Paul has given us this like, this call to follow him into the midst of hard circumstances. And reframing reality in the light of the gospel, relinquishing the control of our lives and remembering the God of the cross is ways that we can enter into that reality. Because, if we, need, because we need Jesus if we are going to walk through suffering with joy. Let me pray for us. God, I can't imagine uh, how each and every heart needs the truth in here. Needs the flexibility, needs the faith and the perspective, and yet needs you to attune to them in the midst of their specific situations. And so, Lord, I pray that as we walk out into this week, that you would prepare our hearts for whatever you have for us and free us to walk before you in any circumstance marked by joy. In Jesus' name, amen.